0: Everybody doubts. It's it's a common experience for us. Um, And here's what doubt is. Doubt is uncertainty. Doubt is hesitation to believe. It's undecidedness. It's distrust. So that would be the, the general understanding of what doubt is. Do Christians ever doubt? Do they ever doubt the truths of God's word? Sure. They absolutely do. Even mature Christians doubt at times. At the root of every sin is doubt or unbelief. We we fail to actually believe what God says at that moment of our sin, so we just do the opposite. We're not believing in God. Uh, Romans 14, 23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's interesting. Everybody doubts. Everybody doubts. But does that mean that doubt is good? If doubt is so common, part of our experience, should we just embrace doubt? As odd as it may sound, many professing Christians talk about doubt as if it is good, as if we should welcome doubt into our lives. And if you listen closely, many people support doubt while opposing certainty. Here's an example. Christian piet, is a professing Christian, a published author and blogger. His blog is oddly titled, A Heretic's Guide to the Bible. Here are a few quotes from Mr. Pyatt's very peculiar article titled, Replacing Faith with Curiosity. He writes this, every day my previously stable faith is replaced with a little more hungry curiosity. I consider this progress, end of quote. Another quote. I write fairly often about moving away from emphasis on a propositional faith and toward one that is more implicitly lived out in our daily experience, end of quote. So propositional truth is a true claim, a true statement. Propositional truth assumes that there's something called absolute truth. Propositional faith, then, is trusting in doctrines that are absolutely truth, namely, Scripture. Propositional faith is trusting that what God says in his word is absolutely true, But Mr. Pyatt doesn't want to emphasize trusting in propositional truth, but instead trusting in personal experience and living morally. He continued, "'It seems that, in a sense, the very notion of faith has become synonymous with propositional certainty within the context of religion. As such, I'm inclined to think about my daily practice of Christianity a little bit differently.' Rather than trying to claim or lean on a steadfast and immovable certainty about the existence and nature of God and the existence and nature of Jesus, I find myself more curious about them in an active, Sometimes almost breathless sort of way, rather than finding any sanctuary or rest in some sort of intellectual or emotional certitude. He means finding certainty in God. So instead about being certain about God, Piotr prefers to be curious about God. Keep in mind, he's a professing Christian. Another quote from from Piotr. I am increasingly comfortable with the idea of being more curious about God than I am faithful in God. Jesus said in Mark 11:22, "Have faith in God." Not curiosity, not inquisitiveness, but faith with logically implies confidence or assurance in God Himself. Are we justified by curiosity about God? No, the Bible says we are justified by faith. Jesus didn't redeem us and give us the Holy Spirit so we could be curious about God. Mr. Pyatt makes doubt sound appealing, and he doesn't even seem to suggest in this article or in the few things that I read from him, he doesn't seem to suggest fighting doubt. So the question is, should we embrace doubt because it's good, or should we resist it because it's bad? You may have heard the name Philip Yancey, a professing Christian. His books have sold over 14 million copies worldwide, ranking him among best-selling evangelical authors. Yancey said that, quote, God seems rather doubt-tolerant. He also said this, quote, where there is certainty, there is no room for faith, end quote. I mean, we don't even have time to unpack how stupid of a statement that is. The biblical word for faith is pistis, which means conviction, or a strong confidence in, or a reliance upon. The nature of faith is certainty in Christ listen closely to what Yancey said I'm an advocate of doubt because that's why I became a Christian in the first place I started doubting some of the crazy things my church taught me when I was growing up Yancey advocates doubt and he added this I'm also impressed that the Bible includes so many examples of doubt. Evidently, God has more tolerance of doubt than most churches. Does God tolerate doubt? And I would say, you know, in one way, I guess he does because his judgment tarries. He is still gracious to us and even unbelieving people. But listen to what Jesus said Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Jesus rebuked doubt. He said, why do doubts arise in your heart? As in, they shouldn't arise in your heart. God led James to write this, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And then James went on to describe that kind of doubter as, quote, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God Never encourages doubt. Luke wrote his gospel to his friend, Theophilus, so that he would, and this is a quote, have certainty concerning, certainty concerning the gospel. Certainty, the word epigenosco, or to fully know, or to have certain or complete knowledge about something. God revealed himself to us through his words so that we would be certain, not curious. God told us his way is perfect, his word proves true, the sum of his word is truth, and every one of his righteous rules endures forever. Those statements God made to us through his word so that it would build certainty in us, not curiosity. My friends, doubt isn't Good. Doubt will never give us more joy in God. We must fight it. And as we do, the Spirit will help us believe. So our disposition before God should be like the man, and you know who he is, who cried out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Even the apostles cried out to Jesus, increase our faith. Now, deep down, these men believed. They absolutely did. But they recognized the weakness and insufficiency of their faith and their propensity to disbelieve. So they asked Jesus to help them believe, which was an act of faith in Christ. Do you understand that? That's the nature of faith. We go to Jesus believing that he can and he will strengthen our certainty in him. So as you look to Christ and trust God, God will build your certainty in him. I am not suggesting hiding your doubt. I'm not suggesting running from your doubt. I'm not suggesting never asking really tough questions of God and His Word. To the contrary, actually, we must be open about our doubt. We must be uh, open about our unbelief. We must ask hard questions. But at the end of the day, we face our doubt and we slay it with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We never make peace with doubt. We fight and kill it with the Spirit and the Word. That's how we labor when we are just coming up upon this beast of doubt. We go after it. I want you to see in John 20 how Jesus came to Thomas and lovingly and powerfully led him out of doubt and into belief, worship, and adoration. And then I want you to see that and to apply that to your life. So here's what I want you to get. Jesus graciously comes to us and sovereignly leads us out of doubt so that we can see his glory and worship and enjoy him. So what hope do you have in your doubt? I hope to answer that. Who was Thomas? Look at verse 24. He was one of the chosen 12. Verse 24 also tells us that his name was Didymus, which means twin. So Thomas was a twin. Cool fact about him. He was a courageous man, but he was also a little bit of a pessimist. You might remember John 11. Jesus and his disciples are in Bethany across the Jordan, and they heard that Lazarus died, and uh, Jesus wanted to return to Judea, and in Judea, people wanted Jesus dead. So this is danger zone here. And uh, it was Thomas who said to the other disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Right? So he's a pessimist. All right? Not really hopeful. That was courageous. That was loyal. Not exactly optimistic. Verse 24 clarifies that Thomas wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus appeared in that locked room in verses 19 through 23. So we don't know why Thomas was there. I, I think that Thomas was disheartened. I think that he was pulling away. And I think that he was really struggling with doubt, but we don't know why he wasn't there with them. Watch what happened, verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Oh, Thomas, Thomas, come on. You got to believe, man, because you're, you're best friends. This is a group that you've hung out with for a long time. You know these guys. They're telling you that they have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas, look into the amazement of their eyes. Look look at their sense of urgency and how they're communicating to you, Thomas. Thomas had every reason to believe the other disciples. Around two weeks before Jesus told all of them, he told them this, as they're approaching Jerusalem, that he would be crucified and raised again on the third day. Jesus said that to them. Then in the upper room, less than two weeks before, Jesus told them this, all of them, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Well, they didn't understand what he was trying to say, so Jesus clarified and he explained, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Thomas was primed for the resurrection. Jesus had talked to them about this, but Thomas refused to believe. Thomas refused to believe. He not only doubted the other disciples, but he doubted everything that Jesus was saying about his own resurrection. Listen to how Thomas responded to the good news of the resurrection, verse 25. Unless I see... In his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Instead of doubting Thomas, how about dogmatically disbelieving Thomas? The other disciples were were likely, uh, we don't know, but they were likely pleading with him. Thomas, we actually saw Jesus alive. you got to believe us, man. We're not lying to you. He, he was here. He, he showed up. He spoke to us. They were actually preaching truth to Thomas. Truth that they had all experienced firsthand. But unless Thomas experienced Jesus, he wouldn't believe them. Dogmatic disbelief. You can't see this in the English, but in the Greek t- uh, text, Thomas used a double negative to put emphasis behind his disbelief. It's like saying... Uh, Not, not, I will believe. So he's saying, I will never believe. Unless I see. Think about it. Thomas was blinded by doubt. He refused to believe until he saw and touched. And if you think about it, that kind of attitude still sends people to hell. Unless I experience, I will not believe. Thomas was like so many people today. They refuse to believe much unless they can test it, unless they can run it through the scientific uh, theory. Or what does that leave you with? History. Our personal experience never, never trumps God's propositional truth and reality. Here is where we see the tender mercy and grace of Jesus pursuing Thomas in his belief. This is beautiful. Look at verse 26. Eight days later... His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Jesus did it again. This is so cool. And this time, Thomas was there, and Jesus came to Thomas, and he came because he loved Thomas, and he would make absolutely sure that Thomas believed. And notice how Jesus handled Thomas's disbelief. Jesus rebuked Thomas and called him out of disbelief. He rebuked Thomas and called him out of disbelief. Jesus didn't advocate, in other words, Thomas's doubt. He never advocated doubt. He rebuked doubt. He called attention to it and he called Thomas out of it. Jesus wasn't with the disciples in verse 25. But he knew what Thomas had said. He knew Thomas's heart. His words to Thomas in verse 27 were so appropriate for Thomas. This is what Jesus said. Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus nailed it. He said exactly what Thomas was thinking and arguing before. He he said the exact thing that Thomas needed to hear And then he gave Thomas the exact thing that Thomas was so longing to experience. This is grace. This is amazing grace. Each strategic word of Jesus lovingly exposed the, the pride inside of Thomas and the doubt inside of Thomas and the sin inside of Thomas. And he gently called Thomas out of disbelief. Doubt is never a good thing. Because Jesus tells people not to do it If doubt was good, Jesus would advocate it He would say something in scripture positive about doubt He doesn't But even if we do doubt, doubt cannot stop Please get this, doubt cannot stop the relentless grace of Christ From transforming us Jesus is the answer to our doubt Jesus saw doubt in Thomas and he said, do not disbelieve. More literally, it is, do not be unbelieving. Do not be unbelieving. That's what being a doubter is. It's being unbelieving. Jesus told Thomas not to be lacking in trust, but instead to be trusting or to be full of faith. To be believing is more than intellectual agreement its trust in, its confidence in, its reliance upon. Jesus called Thomas out of doubt and into certainty. Verse 29 is amazing too. Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. More than Thomas seeing, Jesus came to Thomas for him to see. I, I think there is nuance here in verse 29. I think Jesus was ironically drawing attention to his sovereign grace. Jesus came to Thomas. Isn't that what happened? Jesus kept Thomas. Jesus built Thomas's faith. But Jesus was also reminding Thomas... That many would believe without seeing. And I think that that statement right there humbled Thomas. It humbled him and it pointed to how God works through the proclamation of the propositional gospel. Through eyewitness testimony to give people faith and joy in Christ despite not seeing physically. Listen to Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Not seeing. Hearing. We don't need to see to believe. Just hear and believe if you have ears to hear. God has made the proclamation and hearing of His word the means by which He overcomes disheartened doubt and creates unwavering faith in people. How, you're, so you're believing. How did that belief get there? It's because God is sovereign over doubt, and he comes and he leads you from disheartened doubt into celebrative certainty. We serve a sovereign God who is sovereign over unbelief, and he can turn hearts. God comes to us through his word. This is what John Calvin wrote. Faith cannot flow. From a merely experiential knowledge of events, but must draw its origin from the word of God. So if you struggle with doubt, make sure that you press into the very things that will bolster your faith. Namely, the preaching, teaching, reading, studying, memorizing, and treasuring of the Word of God. Do not expect to believe if you are reading one verse a day of the Bible. You have to press into the means that will strengthen and bolster your faith, the Word of God and the Spirit working through the Word of God. Why would you cut yourself off from the primary means that God uses to build your faith? So if your faith is anemic and you're like, man, everything's just going crazy, I want you to ask your question. Are you opening the word? Are you studying it? And are you inviting God to come to you through it to reveal himself to you? If you're not, you're shooting yourself in the heart. The word of God, treasure it. A short point before we move on, why are Jesus' scars still there? It was his glorified body, right? Didn't he heal from this? Well, for one, it proved to his disciples that it was really him. This was Jesus. But his scars do much more than that. Jesus' scars are an eternal reminder for us of what he did for us. His wounds are part of his glory that we'll see and savor forever. 20 trillion years from now, we will see his scars and we will think how glorious our Christ is, how he loves me, how he loves you, how we love him. The scars point us to him. So Jesus called Thomas out of disbelief, but he did more for him. Jesus graciously displaced Thomas's disbelief with belief. He graciously displaced Thomas's disbelief with belief. Now you can see how nerve-wracking a swinging bridge is, depending on how high this thing is. Has that you been on a swinging bridge before? Some of you are probably like, no, and it will stay that way. But uh, you can see. As you're standing there, all the teenagers, they're like doing cartwheels across the thing. Stomping up and down and it's waving and you're like, I would not do that. And, uh, and you're paralyzed with fear. You only truly believe when all of your weight is transferred on to the swinging bridge. And when it holds you up as you slowly walk across. The bridge will get you across safely only when you're on the bridge. It might be scary. You might look down. You might have your doubts. But no matter what you're feeling there, you're on the bridge and the bridge is getting you safely across. And deep down, you believe that the bridge is getting you across because you're actually getting across. Do you understand where I'm going with this? Jesus came Thomas to call him out of his disbelief but then he told him to be believing and he held him up and he built a faith inside of him that's how good Jesus is he holds us up and he carries us across Jesus brought peace to Thomas verse 26 Jesus invited Thomas to touch and see he called Thomas out of a state of unbelief and into a state of belief and watch what happened Thomas answered my Lord and my God I think John featured Thomas in these verses to show that Jesus can overcome the most stubborn and unbelieving heart. That's why I think he focuses in on Thomas. What took Thomas from, I will never believe, into my Lord and my God? How do you get there? I think it had less to do with Thomas and more to do with Jesus. It was Jesus who displaced doubt with certainty. Jesus is the only one that changes hearts like that. Think about these two things. We know from John 17 that God had given Thomas to Jesus to redeem. We know that. He was one of the chosen people. God said, here's Thomas as one. I want you to redeem him, Jesus. Just read Jesus again in John 17. Thomas belonged to God. We know Jesus prayed for Thomas. Jesus was glorified in Thomas. Jesus prayed that Thomas would be kept in the Father's name. Jesus kept Thomas in the Father's name. Jesus guarded Thomas. Jesus made sure Thomas wasn't lost. Jesus prayed that Thomas would keep, or that God rather, would keep Thomas from the evil one. Jesus prayed that God would sanctify Thomas in the truth. And gave himself that Thomas would be sanctified in the truth. Thomas' faith was God answering Jesus' prayers. Also in verse 27, when Jesus said to Thomas, be believing what happened. Thomas believed. Thomas believed. He said, my Lord and my God. He went from disheartened doubt to celebrative certainty. Could it be that at that moment... He wasn't just suggesting something that Thomas should do, but he was using the imperative to command that at that moment, Thomas believe. Be believing, Thomas. And what happened? Thomas believed. I see that as potentially the sovereign grace of God. First, Thomas affirmed propositional truth about Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Verse 28 connects nicely with John 1.1. Do you remember what that says? And the word was God. Who's that talking about? Jesus. The word was God. By, By recording this encounter, John clearly meant to proclaim and affirm that Jesus is indeed God. But more than that, verse 28 shows that Thomas himself received Jesus as his Lord and as his God. Not only was it propositional truth, it was experiential truth and they went hand in hand. Thomas' statement was no less than worship and adoration of Jesus Christ. It, it, it is the expression of every Christian who believes. They look to Christ and they say, my lord and my god as lord and god jesus christ holds complete supremacy over you and over me and he fills our hearts with joy as we worship him as we were created to do these verses illustrate how people come to faith in christ what that looks like. The, the shout of every true believer, Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my God. It, it, it is giving the authority to another. It is saying, I am under his lordship, his mastery. He is controlling me by his spirit. He is supreme. I am not. I am under him. I've referred to, to verse 30 and 31 frequently throughout this entire sermon series and and verses 30 and 31, they explain why John wrote this book. And it's the point that I've been trying to pound home ever since I began this 16 years ago. I'm just kidding. It was like two, not even two and a half. But it, it, it fits nicely with the Thomas narrative. It's connected to the Thomas narrative. John wrote this book to help doubters believe in propositional truth so they could live. In Christ. Right after writing about Thomas, John added these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus performed many, many more incredible things. I'm not even sure John is scratching the surface on the awesome things that Jesus accomplished in his life and signs that he performed in the presence of his disciples right in front of them for, for them to see and to validate. John wrote about a few of them. John is just a snapshot of the infinite glory of Christ. But everything that John wrote serves to present propositional truth, statements to be believed, absolutes that we must embrace by faith. John wrote clear words to be believed. These are intelligible words. These are reasonable words. These are logical words. But the book of John is more than true. It's truth that gives life. Verse 30 and 31 connect back to verse 29. John's readers would not see Jesus in the flesh um, till he certainly returns, but but many would still believe in him. So John's aim was to write what needed to be believed. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, and when you trust Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, when you believe in his name, you live. You live, and, and that's just what John is just trying to... Pound. You'll notice believe, John uses... I'm spitting everywhere. John uses believe more than any other writer. I mean, he pounds the point home. Believe, believe, believe. And I want you to know that doubt does not give life. Uncertainty does not give life. Indecision does not give life. Unbelief does not give life. Jesus gives life, and he gives it one way, by grace, through faith. Can I get an amen? Notice John said in verse 31, by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote propositional truth that doubters can stand confidently upon as they live in Christ. Understand what John is getting at here. He he doesn't want you to just hear about Jesus or think about Jesus or believe that Jesus exists. John wants you to trust in Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, and to receive him joyfully as your Lord and as your God. God. John worked hard on this book many years ago so that we could hear the truth about Jesus and move from disheartened doubt to celebrative certainty. And I want you walking away just hearing that. Jesus moves people from disheartened doubt to celebrative certainty. I think that all of us struggle with doubt in one way or another. I think every sin has its origin in doubt or unbelief. We struggle to believe what God tells us in His Word because doubt or skepticism is ingrained in our sinful nature. We know what we should believe, but we often don't believe it. Isn't doubt at the root of anxiety? We worry because we doubt that God will take care of us or that all things will really work out for our good if we love God. Isn't doubt at the root of fear? We fear because we doubt that God will protect us. Isn't doubt at the root of feeling insecure about yourself? We feel insecure about ourselves because we doubt our true identity in Christ and that he who began a good work in us will carry it to completion. Isn't doubt at the root of complaining If we complain, we doubt the goodness of God's grace in our lives. Isn't doubt at the root of lust? If we lust, we doubt that God is able to satisfy us more than worldly pleasures. Isn't that what's going on? I used to think that pride was the root of all sin, but I don't think that anymore. I think you got to get even deeper than pride, and I think it leads right to doubt and unbelief, which I think is at the root of every sin. Isn't doubt at the root of pride? If you're prideful, you doubt that God is supreme over you. And everything that God created, He has created equal. You are equal to everyone else. And that without God upholding you by the word of His power, you are nothing. So, this is tender. This is a tender subject for all of us. We struggle with believing God. I struggle with believing God. You struggle with believing God. So is the message, come on people, pull yourselves together. You just got to believe more. I think that's very unhelpful. And I think it just takes joy from us. Here's what I think the answer is. We must cry out to Jesus Christ, to move us from disheartened doubt into celebrative certainty. We cry out to him. We depend on him. He's all we have. He's all we have. Jesus comes to us and Jesus is the answer to our doubt. You do need to trust that Jesus can help you conquer doubt so that you call out to him to help you conquer doubt. Unless you look to the sure foundation of Christ to build your faith, unless you cry out with a heart that says, I believe, help my unbelief, I think doubt will paralyze you. You'll shut down. It'll drain your joy. You'll have nothing left. So in this story, you may actually really identify with Thomas. And hopefully in this passage, Thomas is not your hero. Hopefully, You look at Christ and think, yes, he did it for Thomas. He can do it for me. I'm going to be honest about where I'm at, and I'm going to look to Christ. I'm going to look to Christ, and I'm going to believe that he's going to show up and that he's going to do something in my heart to increase my faith in him. I just think we cry out. It takes a humble person to cry out like that. But he can do it for you. Oh, he can do it for you. He did it for Thomas. He can do it for us. My Lord and my God, is that the cry of your heart? As you look to Christ, Jesus is bigger than your doubt. Jesus is bigger than your doubt. And as you listen to his word, the Bible, and love and trust him, he strengthens your faith with his spirit and with his word. Here's the key. How did Thomas say, my Lord and my God? How did he celebrate and adore Jesus with such certainty? He saw Jesus, yes. Yes, he did. But 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 is the answer. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You cannot move yourself from disheartened doubt into celebrative certainty. By working harder and gritting your teeth and saying, I'm just going to do this you will be frustrated, you will be discouraged, you will just waste your energy and it won't work. You are not the answer. God is the answer and his spirit can lead you where your heart wants to go. Certainty. Be honest. Be honest and immerse yourself in God's word. Pray that the Spirit opens your heart to see and believe. Come to church and sit under the preaching of God's Word. Take advantage of our good Sunday school program to sit under the teaching of God's Word. Open your Bibles throughout the week and read, read, read with full dependence that God will show up you should expect when you open your Bible, God's going to show up and God's going to build my faith. You should take the Lord's Supper, if you're a believer, and by the means of his grace, feast upon, upon him by faith and allow him to strengthen you. Why would you cut yourself off from those things? Then don't be surprised if you struggle with doubt. But if you do struggle with doubt, you're in good company because we can do this together as brothers and sisters. We can come together 1 Peter 1, 7 and 9. It's awesome. you got to hear this. Though you have not seen him, Jerusalem church, I added that, you love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want to rejoice. I want to trust more. I'm just such a weak and pathetic man. And so... it. I want that outcome of my faith to salvation. I want to be saved. We don't see him, but we love him. Oh, how right the hymn is. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. When the darkness of doubt closes in, understand that it is God who drives it away. The light and heat of his mercy and grace open our hearts up to his beauty and glory as we adore and worship him as our Lord of love. And by his sovereign grace, God drives doubt away and replaces it with rejoicing in him can you see how destructive it is to make peace with your doubt? We're asking and crying out for God to drive it away. I know doubt is a very dark place, but when the beautiful light of Christ shines upon our doubt, we bloom and we celebrate Him with all that we are. Let's pray. God, you're awesome. And I pray. That you will drive the dark of doubt away. And that we would believe, God, we are weak. And we need you to sustain us. So I pray that you do a work in Jerusalem church. And the one here this morning that has been doubting. That is just wondering, man, I don't even know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm assured of my salvation. I, I don't know what you're doing, God. I just struggle so much with doubt. I just pray that you encourage that person and help them. Uh, to see how glorious Jesus is to come to us, to meet us right where we're at, and to move us from disheartened doubt to celebrative certainty. And God, with that celebrative certainty, I pray that we celebrate how firm our foundation is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.